So there's this woman and her last name is Hug and Kiss. Her first name is Amanda. So her name is Amanda Hug and Kiss. There's actually a young woman who works for the CBC and her name is Anita Bath. You know, Mennonites have, have some great names themselves. There's a woman whose name is Iona Nickel. Great lady, great lady. Not wealthy though. Uh, there's a man named Corny Reimer. Corny Reimer always had the lamest jokes. God rest his soul. Um, you know, it's said that what is a Mennonite uh, out, out in the cold, uh, Peter Friesen, What's the name of a Mennonite who's been out in the cold too long? Peter Froze. And this, this, this is true. Um, there was a woman, there's a woman named Helen, and she, she married a guy whose last name is Back. And so her, when she got married, her name became Helen Back. And apparently, after 10 years of marriage, she said that that was mostly true. <sighs> Names matter. Names matter. In the Bible, names are a big deal. And so when God, through the prophet Isaiah, gives Jesus the coming Savior, four names, four titles, what, he, what he's doing is describing why the baby that would be born is the greatest gift he could possibly give to you and me. Our Advent series will unpack these four names for Jesus that we find in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says, And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So with that, we are officially beginning the season of Advent. And I don't know about you, but I've never looked forward to Advent so much in my life before. And I think that's because our world needs more hope and more peace and more joy and more love and more light in 2020. And that's because the world needs more Jesus. The world needs Jesus. And so our Advent series is called A Light Has Dawned, which comes from verse 2 of Isaiah 9. And the thing about light that, that's so striking and most striking, I should say, is when it pierces darkness. So, so while many things feel, feel dark right now, let's fixate on Jesus this Advent season, who, who is the light of the world. I want to give you a little context for this prophecy in Isaiah 9. Isaiah the prophet is sent to King Ahaz, who, who was in crisis because the Assyrian army was, was mounting an attack on Jerusalem. And he doesn't know what to do. And so Isaiah told him not to fear because God would give him a sign that he was with Ahaz. In chapter 9, we see that a notable baby was born. But it also quickly becomes apparent that Isaiah is referring to a child much, much more significant than the one that was born in that day. In chapter 7, verse 14, it says um, that she will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That word Emmanuel, that name Emmanuel means God with us. And like I referred to about these titles in chapter nine, verse six, titles like mighty God and everlasting father. These are names that don't belong to a merely human child. And so, so, so here's how, how prophecy typically works in the Bible. There's usually an immediate fulfillment in the prophet's day. I mean, they stoned prophets if things didn't work out 
according to what they would prophesy. So, so there was usually an immediate fulfillment in the prophet's day, but then also an ultimate fulfillment in the future. I mean, there are hundreds of messianic prophecies about the coming of Jesus. Jesus would come 700 years after this prophecy that Isaiah gives. And so sometimes the gap between the first fulfillment and the ultimate fulfillment is hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Let me, let me try and describe prophecy in the Bible this way. We in Chilliwack are blessed with this gorgeous Shiam mountain range. It's the skyline that we see. When you look to the east, it's, there it is, and it's gorgeous. And it really looks like peaks are almost stacked on top of each other. They're, they're right on each other. They're right connected to each other, side by side. Like you could climb to the top of one and just really easily scoot over to the next one. But, but, but many of you have climbed to some of those peaks. I, I certainly haven't. But, but some of you have. Uh, I did, however, get to take a plane ride with Ernie, our... Uh, our moderator of our elders board. He took me up on one of his company planes uh, a year or two ago, and we flew like really over, really low over the Fraser River, freaked out some fishermen, I think. And then we went over this mountain range and it was stunning. And what I realized as we were up there is, yeah, from, from, from the city, as you look at the view, they all look on top of each other. It's all right there. But when, you, when, you, when you're cruising around one of the peaks, you realize the next peak is sometimes miles away. And so that's how prophecy typically works in the Bible. There's a, there's a gap. There's a gap of time between the first fulfillment and the, the ultimate fulfillment. And so that's what we're seeing in Isaiah. Yes, there was an immediate fulfillment, but we're pressing into this ultimate fulfillment that, 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 that's the, the, with the gap in between. And we're, we're, we're looking in at Jesus, the wonderful counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. With our remaining time, we're, we're going to spend time looking at this title, this name, Wonderful Counselor. Here's the first thing I'd want to say about it. The Wonderful Counselor came for people with problems. Praise God. Meaning this, your problems don't scare Jesus. They're why he came. God didn't send his only son at Christmas because we were all fine. He sent his son into the world to be the great physician to remedy our sickness. He sent his son to address our sin and death problem, which he did on the cross and through the resurrection from the grave. The fact that Jesus came for people with problems means this. He loves and he cares for you and for me, people with problems. But what is it about Jesus that makes him the wonderful counselor? Why is Jesus the wonderful counselor? When, when you're going through something really difficult, it's good to talk to someone who gets what you're going through, right? Someone who's walked that path. That's why Jesus is the wonderful counselor. The story of Christmas tells us that God has been born in a manger. And that, that's something that no other faith tradition claims. Here's what that means. It means that God understands you because he's experienced firsthand what you're going through, right? God has known what it's like to be hungry or tired or low on finances. God knows what it means to be betrayed and abandoned by friends. He knows what it means to have loved ones die. He knows what it means to be crushed by injustice, even tortured 
Our wonderful counselor even knows what it's like to die. So when you come to him, he understands. Now the writer in Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter four, starting in verse verse 14. It says, since then we have a high priest. What does a high priest do? They're the mediator between God and the people. They're counselors. Since since then we have a great high priest, a, a wonderful counselor who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a priest, a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. uh, Dorothy Sayers, 20th century British novelist, She put it this way, the incarnation means that for whatever reason, God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death. He has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain all for us and thought it well worth his while. What a savior. This title, this name, Wonderful Counselor, here's what it really means. The word wonderful has to do with being beyond understanding, right? Wonder, awe. So wonderful has to do with being beyond understanding or too wonderful for words. I love that. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, the too wonderful for words counselor. And And the word counselor itself, you know this, is one who gives counsel, yes, but advises and instructs. But not only that, here's the key about the wonderful counselor. He counsels and advises and instructs from a position of authority. Here's what that means. He not only listens, loves, and cares, which he certainly does, but he also has the power and authority to enact the solution in our lives. So, so, So back to this idea that the wonderful counselor came for people with problems. Here's a challenge I want to give to you, though. Here's the the first challenge. I'm going to give you a couple. Here's the first one. First challenge in regards to the wonderful counselor I want to give you is that I want to invite you to get honest with the wonderful counselor. 12-step programs begin this way. The first step is honesty. It's all about honesty. It's put this way. We admitted we were powerless over our addiction, that our lives had become unmanageable. The very first step is honesty, admitting that we are powerless over our addictions, over our sins, over our problems, and that our lives have become unmanageable. To get honest with the wonderful counselor then is really to recognize that until we admit our failings, our need, we're not in a position to experience the work of the wonderful counselor in our lives. 
Now, some of the reasons that that happens is, is shame and fear often drive us to hide rather than be open and honest with people. Maybe we're embarrassed about how bad things have gotten in our lives, or, or maybe we're, we're fearful that people and even God will abandon us if we get honest. But the fact that the wonderful counselor came for us proves that wrong. John chapter 4 tells us about a conversation Jesus had with a woman at a well in Samaria. And her life was a mess, but she didn't tell Jesus that. They were talking, and she could tell that he was a spiritual man, and she started asking these questions of faith. The reality in her life was that she had had a number of broken marriages and was in an adulterous relationship at the time, and she was deeply unhappy and wounded. And she kept trying to hide all that from Jesus. Why? I think the reason that we try to hide stuff like that is we worry that if, if the person we're talking to found out, they'd, they'd leave, they'd walk away. And so in that situation, she was likely worried that, that Jesus would simply walk away from her if he knew her life. But do you know what happened instead? At one point in the conversation, Jesus said, look, I know you've had five husbands and you're living with a man right now who isn't your husband. I, I, I knew that. I knew that when you walked up to me. I know you're trying to hide that from me, but I've known all along and it didn't stop me from coming after you. Look, the grace and power of the wonderful counselor is so great that there's no problem you can possibly have that he can't handle. And his love for you is so great that it won't cause him to turn away from you. So my first challenge to you is this, get honest with the wonderful counselor. Because Christmas proves that he comes towards those with problems in love. Here, here's the second challenge I would give you in regards to the wonderful counselor. Embrace him. Embrace the wonderful counselor. There's this story that's repeated in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's about this guy who's referred to as the rich young ruler. And he comes up to Jesus and he's really interested in Jesus. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus is like, well, you know the commandments. And, 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 and they list them off together. And the rich young ruler says, I've kept all of them from my youth. And it says next in Mark's gospel that Jesus, looking at him, loved him, loved him. And then Jesus responded to him, you lack one thing, sell everything, give it to the poor, and come follow me. What the text tells us next is that this rich young ruler becomes devastated and he walks away sad. We see in the text, Jesus loved him. Jesus pursued him. Jesus invited him to follow Jesus. But the rich young ruler chose to embrace his wealth rather than Jesus. So that's my second challenge to you is, is you need to embrace the wonderful counselor. Don't let anything else take that ultimate place that only Jesus deserves to have in your life. All right, let's summarize a little bit. Here's, here's what we've discovered so far. Jesus came for people with problems. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Meaning he cares 
about you and loves you. And because of Christmas, God gets what you're going through. And if you'll get honest and are willing to trust and embrace the wonderful counselor, he has the power to redeem you, heal you, restore you, and fill you. So first, the wonderful counselor came for people with problems. Amazing. Here's the second and final thing I want to share with you today. The best part is that the wonderful counselor is wonderful. The best part is that the wonderful counselor is wonderful. Let me explain what I mean. Look, Jesus isn't just the wonderful counselor because he can fix your problems. He's the wonderful counselor because he is wonderful. Isaiah uses the word wonderful to describe Jesus, not the solution he brings to our problems. He uses the title to describe Jesus himself, meaning however good his gifts are, the giver is better. This first Sunday of Advent, the, the theme is hope. So the big question is, why do we have hope? And this text reveals to us that we have a God who came for people with problems and he came to solve those. He has enough love to come and enough power to fix. That gives us hope. But even better, we have hope because Christmas means God came, meaning we get God. What often drives us to God and to church in the first place is a, is a hope that he can make our lives better. That, that, that's, that's natural. Many of us were driven to God or driven to church, whatever, all of that in the first place with this hope that he can make our lives better. Maybe if I go to church, God will help me with my anxiety and my depression. Maybe if I, if I go to church, maybe God will help me with my marriage issues or, or the challenges we're having with one of our kids or, or the Lord will give me a spouse or solve the illness or the pain that I've got or, or help me manage my work stress. Now, don't take this the wrong way, but I don't know if God will heal all of those. Like some of you have been walking through very hard things for a very long time. Wondering, God, where are you? So, so frankly, I don't, I don't know if your circumstances will improve. But here's what I do know. You get God now and forever. And that, that changes how you see and walk through your circumstances. I, I want to illustrate that with, with two stories. One's short, one's long. That's how we're going to close. I think they both remind us that the best thing of all is that we get God. Richard Williams and Alan Gardner left as missionaries to the southern tip of South America in 1851. But their ship was forced, into, uh, into, uh, forced to winter in a cold and bitter bay, and the supply vessel never arrived. Everyone on board their ship died of cold and starvation. 
Even as they were suffering on Good Friday, April 18th, 1851, Williams wrote in his journal, poor and weak though we are, our abode is a very Bethel to our souls. Bethel means holy place. And God we feel and know is here. Then on Wednesday, May 7th, he wrote, should anything prevent my ever adding to this, to his journal, let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond description when I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any man living. Okay, catch this. They are starving and freezing to death. But in this ship, this very Bethel, this holy place, they are experiencing the very presence of God and therefore they were happy. And he can write in his journal, I wouldn't trade places with anyone on the planet for what I've got here as they starved and froze. Listen, when your supply ship doesn't arrive, God can make your crisis a holy place. As you find by faith that he is with you and that he himself makes you happy beyond description. Okay, one more story. It's about Vanitha Rendell. She wrote a book called Walking Through Fire, her memoir about loss and redemption. Here's what she wrote. Countless childhood surgeries, year-long stints in the hospital, Verbal and physical bullying from classmates, multiple miscarriages as a young wife, the unexpected death of a child, a debilitating progressive disease, riveting pain, betrayal, a husband who leaves, all of this happened to her. She writes, if it were up to me, I would have written my story differently. Not one of those phrases would be included. Each line represents something hard, gut-wrenching, life-changing. But now, in retrospect, I wouldn't erase a single line. Honestly, it is only in hindsight that I can make such a bold statement. Through all of those devastating events, I begged God to deliver me, to save my baby, to reverse my disease to bring my husband back each time God said no. No was not the answer I wanted. I was looking for miraculous answers to prayer, a return to normalcy, relief from the pain. I wanted the kind of grace that would deliver me from my circumstances. God in his mercy offered his sustaining grace. At first I rejected it as insufficient. I wanted deliverance, not sustenance. I wanted the pain to stop, not to be held up through the pain. I was just like the children of Israel who rejoiced at God's delivering grace in the parting of the Red Sea, but complained bitterly at his sustaining grace in the provision of manna. Manna was bread from heaven. With every heartache, she writes, I wanted a Red Sea miracle, a miracle that would astonish the world, reward me for my faithfulness, make my life glorious. I didn't want manna, but God knew better. Each day he continued to put manna before me. At first I grumbled 
It seemed like second best. It wasn't the feast I envisioned. It was bland and monotonous. But after a while, I began to taste the manna, embrace it, and savor its sweetness. This manna, this sustaining grace, is what upheld me. It revived me when I was weak. It drove me to my knees. And unlike delivering grace, which one received, which once received inadvertently moved me to greater independence from God, sustaining grace kept me tethered to him. I needed it every day. Like manna, it was new every morning. God has delivered me and answered some prayers with resounding yes in jaw-dropping supernatural ways. I look back at them with gratitude and awe, yet after those prayers were answered, I went back to my everyday life, often less dependent on God. But the answers of no or wait and those answered by imperceptible degrees over time have done a far deeper work in my soul. They have kept me connected to the giver and not his gifts. They have forced me to seek him, and in seeking him, I have discovered the intimacy of his fellowship. In the midst of my deepest pain, in the darkness of God's presence, in the darkness, God's presence has been unmistakable. Through excruciating struggles, he speaks to me. He comforts me through his word. He whispers to me in the dark as I lie awake on my tear-stained pillow. He sings beautiful songs over me of his love. At first, I just wanted the agony to go away. I don't rejoice in the, in the moment. I don't rejoice at all. But as I cling to God and his promises, he sustains me. Joy is at first elusive. I have glimpses of delight, but it is mostly slow and incremental. Yet over time, I realize I have an inexplicable joy, not in my circumstances, but in the God who cares so fiercely for me. Eating the everyday bland, sometimes unwelcome manna produces a joy beyond my wildest imaginings. I have found that this joy, which is often birthed out of suffering, can never be taken away. It only gets richer over time. My circumstances cannot diminish it. It produces lasting fruit like endurance, character, and hope. It draws me to God in breathtaking ways. It achieves a weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. I still pray earnestly for de deliverance, for the many things I long to see change both in my life and in the world. That is right. It's biblical. We need to bring our requests to God. But much as I long for deliverance, for delivering grace, I see the exquisite blessing in sustaining grace. It's not about getting what I want. Listen to this. It's about God giving me what I desperately need himself. See, what's more valuable than any present solution to your problems is the wonderful presence of the counselor himself in your life. Look, that doesn't take away all of your problems, but it completely changes how you go through them. 
Look, the brokenness in my life may not disappear today or tomorrow or in this lifetime, but I have the wonderful counselor who makes me whole and the promise that one day brokenness itself will be no more. I may not experience immediate victory over every temptation, but because of the wonderful counselor's presence in my life, I have his righteousness and the promise that one day I will be as pure as he is. Okay, so here's the incredible news we've uncovered today. Jesus came for people with problems, meaning he lovingly cares. He also came to solve our greatest problems, meaning he powerfully works. And what's most wonderful of all is that Christmas means he not only came to bring solutions to our problems, but to give us himself. Look, Christmas is going to be different this year. But if you know Jesus, you will not lack. He's enough. He's enough. Jesus, thank you that you are our wonderful, too wonderful for words, counselor. A counselor who, who listens and loves and cares and is powerful enough to bring transformation to our lives. Thank you in your grace that you often change our circumstances which are difficult Thank you for your glorious grace, miraculous grace in, in those ways. Thank you too for your sustaining grace in the meantime. And Jesus, my prayer for us as a church is that this Christmas, we would realize that when we embrace you, we get you. And that's more than enough. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. Amen.